Sexual abuse is a terrible problem in all communities, and sadly, the Orthodox world is certainly no exception. Is the Orthodox community better or worse than others? Have things improved over the past few years as awareness has increased, or have they even gotten worse? And is there reason to hope for the future? I'm Scott Kahn. This is the Orthodox Conundrum. Welcome to the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Over the past few episodes, I've spoken about the important idea that in Judaism, the ends cannot justify the means. The first example I used is the case of Rabbi Yosef Mizrahi and his unacceptable form of Kiruv. The second is the example of religious political parties, where politicians may act in ways contrary to halacha. The fact that this is done to achieve legislative victories towards ostensibly admirable ends is exactly the point. The ends may not justify the means. Today's example is almost certainly the most insidious. The protection of sexual predators and abusers in order to maintain the social order and reputation of an Orthodox community. If children or adults are hurt, we must act to help the victims. We must protect others, no matter who they are or where they are, from becoming future victims. Once the truth of an allegation is clear, we may not muzzle those who have been hurt. We dare not protect the sexual predator. And yet, for reasons that in and of themselves are often understandable, this happens far too often in many communities. And this decidedly includes many parts of the Orthodox world. Regardless of the importance of the ends, such as maintaining the semblance and facade of the integrity and righteousness of a community, we dare not allow those ends to justify the means, which in this case means ignoring or even vilifying the victims, which means failing to take proper precautions. It means failing to ensure as best as possible that the terrible behavior of the abusers cannot continue. I'm sure that none of this is coming as a shock. These problems have received widespread attention. But in order to learn more about the issue and to see if things actually may have improved over the past few years, I asked Shauna Aronson, the COO of Jewish Community Watch, to join me on the show today. Shauna was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and made Aliyah to Israel as a teen. Shauna also was the assistant director of Sophia, a residential therapeutic home for adolescent girls at risk, and she worked as the social services coordinator for Magain Child Protective Services. Her advocacy roles include working and volunteering as a Kala teacher for survivors of interpersonal trauma and birth assistant to women with histories of sexual and physical abuse. Thank you very much for being with me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. Thanks for having me. So tell me, why was Jewish Community Watch founded? Uh, Jewish Community Watch was founded, honestly, accidentally. It was, I think, when our founder, Mayor, um, started the organization. He did not intend for it to be an organization. It was in response to a specific situation that he came across. Um, is this in Israel or the United States? This was in the United States. We were founded originally in the United States. Um, he discovered that his best friend who had passed away, so his best friend's father, uh, had founded a community a community group for youth at risk. And he found out that he was using that group to groom and molest uh, boys in the community. This his was best friend's he was father. very close with, yes. Yes, and the group was actually, was I mean, it was named for his best friend. So this was obviously an incredibly painful, uh, you know, betrayal on so many right. different levels. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when he found out about that and he started looking into it, he actually learned that many years previously, this man had uh, been living in Israel, actually, and he had abused a number of children. He spent a short time in jail, unfortunately, very short jail sentence. In Israel. Yes, in Israel. He had been released and the leaders in that community had made the decision to sort of ship him and his family off to New York and of course, didn't warn anybody. So he went off to New York, settled in Brooklyn, and started molesting children there. What do you mean the leaders of his community made the decision? Obviously, the authorities knew about it. He was in jail. So what do you mean they decided they should ship him off to New York? So once he had concluded, you know, once he finished his jail sentence, obviously, typically, unless somebody's on probation, um, they are allowed to, you know, kind of travel without very much restriction once they have completed their sentence. So that was the case there. And the community just said, we don't want you here, but we don't mind sending you to a similar community in New York. Is that what happened, essentially? Yeah. And that's not something that we find to be uncommon. You know, I think I, I think in general, it's a, it's a human phenomenon to, th- you know, kind of, we primarily think about, okay, what's going on in our own backyard? So if we find out that there's something dangerous, poisonous, you know, going on in our own backyard, we're going to want to shove it over. The first instinct is to shove it over into the next person's backyard. Um, it takes a slightly more mature, nuanced approach to consider, well, what's going to happen to my neighbors then if I just dump it over the fence? So I assume that's why Jewish Community Watch exists. So tell me a little bit about the organization. What do you do? Yeah. So when the organization, again, started, again, not really as an organization, um, it it was a webpage. The purpose was just to warn the community about this particular offender who was a dangerous man who had just, you know, from from our perspective, kind of snuck in or really walked right in the front door of the community um, and was there and nobody knew that he was dangerous. What happened, though, is that, you know, many, um, primarily teenagers, saw this post go up, this anonymous post that this man is dangerous and here's his picture. They saw it go up on the internet and they started sending messages to this account. Uh, this, This account was, again, being run by mayor, although nobody knew that at the time, and asking him to expose their abusers, sending pictures, sending information about the people that had molested them. And that became, that was something that was, you know, Mayor has described as being completely shocking to him. He knew that this happened. Um, He himself was a survivor, but he had no concept. Um, I mean, I don't think any of us really did or could um, until we've really, you know, been immersed in this to understand the extent of it and the, just how how many people had been affected by this. Um, And they just started, you know, hundreds of emails started rolling in. And that was how the organization slowly but surely started. At this point, we deal with a few different areas. We do victim services. So that's um, all different kinds of support for survivors and their families. Um, That's referrals for therapy, referrals for all different kinds of mental health resources. We run support groups. We run virtual support groups so people can connect with other survivors all over the world, which is really important and significant to kind of smash through that isolation that so many people experience. Then we have obviously our kind of awareness and education, which we're very involved in. So we're very active on social media. We run educational events, awareness events, you know, create guidebooks and put those out. So Um, people will be aware of the warning signs? Yeah. To understand the warning signs, to know how do you talk to your children about this? What are the warning signs of someone who might be a predator? What are the warning signs of that your child maybe has been, you know, something has happened to your child and they're not talking about it yet? You know, what are the different things? Now, obviously, this kind of education is by no means foolproof at all. And we stress that to parents very much. But, you know, nothing that you teach or tell your child can 1000% ensure that they will be safe from a predator if a predator, you know, God forbid, gets access to them. But it certainly raises the chances that the child will come speak to their parents. They'll know that this is something they're allowed to talk to their parents about. Research has definitely borne that out, that disclosure 
often happens, you know, earlier children are more likely to disclose sooner if they have parents who have been open, you know, on this topic with them and discuss. And parents them. will know what to look for in their own children right. as well. Right, absolutely. Um, so then aside from that, we, I think we're possibly one of the things we're most well known for is we support victims through the process of reporting to the police and through the court process. And then we also have a kind of private investigations unit, which is sort of when we go back to the roots of how mm-hmm. Mayer started this, you know, along with his friends, when we find out that there's someone in the community who really, according to pretty much every objective piece of information that there is to be found, this person is a is an ongoing danger to the, to the community. And for whatever reason, prosecution or conviction has not yet been possible. Sometimes it's because of the statute of limitations. There's, there's a legal, you know, limit to the length of time sometimes right. that victims can bring reports to the police or that the police can act on it, I really should say. The statute of limitations is sometimes shockingly short. Yes. One of the worst in the world is in New York. I shouldn't say in the world, but in the developed world, certainly. Um, and New York, obviously, is where we have, you know, outside of Israel is the largest Jewish community. So so that uh, creates a tremendous challenge. And we have a lot of, we get a lot of reports there. We will hear from multiple people. They were, let's say, molested by the Rebbe. The Rebbe is still teaching. He is still there. And he is literally, I mean, this man is, there's no question. He's a danger. And the question then for us becomes, okay, what do we do? We have this information. Do do not Do other... you alone have this information? Or does the school where he's teaching also have this information? Are they ignoring it? We'll tell it? them. We'll tell them. I mean, it depends. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Usually if it's been that many years, they, they this is not a secret to them at that point. I mean, obviously now I'm sort of generalizing the kinds of situations that come up. But the statute of limitations is one example of a reason that we would investigate a case where it wouldn't be able to be pursued by law enforcement. Sometimes it's because of jurisdiction. Somebody has moved to another country. Extradition is not possible or the authorities are just not really interested in taking, you know, extradition is an incredibly right. Pricey, complicated, complicated and- lengthy, yes, legal process. So that's, it's not a possibility. So sometimes that, you know, that will be why, why we'll get involved. And whenever we can, however we can, we give all the information we have to law enforcement. Unfortunately, they can't or won't always act on it. So which is where um, our exposure policy comes in. I want to first ask about this idea that you're exposing people or perhaps giving greater exposure to people who have not been convicted or for whom the statute of limitations has passed. How do you know in a certain situation that a person is guilty? One of the things that people do get worried about is that there is a generally good trend Mm -hmm. that when it comes to sexual predators, there's no due process in the court of public opinion. If somebody's accused of being a sexual predator or a child molester, there's an immediate assumption that the person is guilty. Right. That's usually a very good thing. What about the cases where the person isn't? Right, absolutely. And we know that anywhere between, we know that between uh, 96 to 99% of the cases that are reported are found to be true, which leaves, you know, false allegations in the, you know, 1 to 4%, which is very small, but that means it still does exist. If so someone of course is that 1%. Very, exactly. Right. You're not, statistics don't really matter if you're exactly. the, exactly. I mean, obviously, this is something we take very, very seriously. The The responsibility of it is uh, weighed very heavily. And it's not a decision that we make ourselves, our staff. There's as much transparency as we can possibly offer in this process. We do try to offer. Our website has a very lengthy explanation as to our investigation and exposure policy. We have seven professionals who ultimately have to make the decision. A report is given to them. The names are redacted. You know, once once our staff, our private investigators, have collected all of the you know quote unquote evidence, all the information, the victim statement, the witness statements, the outcry witnesses, sometimes review you know physical evidence, text messages, whatever there is to look through. We've compared dates. We've run background checks. We've spoken to law enforcement. It can take many months, if not years, until um, we have enough information where we believe it's it's sufficient for us people to do something this um, you know important and and 
loaded. Uh, at that point, we put it all together. We summarize it into a report. We remove the names from the report so that uh, the committee do not actually get the names of the alleged abuser or the alleged victims, just in case any of them know the parties involved. There shouldn't be any bias there. They review it, and they have to unanimously vote if they do not all agree that there is sufficient. And the people on that committee are Rabanim, who have been active in this field specifically for many years. They are attorneys. Um, and they are clinical psychologists, again, who, who specifically have worked with offenders. And so there is that, some sort of fail-safe situation in place to make sure that, to the best as, of your ability, yes, this is being done very carefully. As best as we can. And, and I think that, you know, we've been doing this for six years now, and we've never been sued. And obviously, if somebody were to be wrongfully accused, especially That's in the first a, in thing pro- they would do. Of course. Now, it will happen one day. There will be somebody who's confident enough to, you know, we know that. But I think the, the fact that we haven't been is, is um, that is because they know Anybody who's put up there and exposed uh, on our website knows that we have a lot of information on them, and um, and we will bring that information to you know if, if necessary. So they they don't want to take that chance. Understood. Speaking in general about the work that you do, trying to find sexual abusers and predators, is this something that, in terms of what you do, is endemic to the Orthodox community? Obviously, it appears in all communities, but is there some special issue that you have to deal with that's specifically relevant to the Orthodox community that may not be relevant to communities that are not Orthodox or Jewish at all? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's an issue that we now know we now know happens everywhere. There is not a community that I am aware of in anywhere in the world that does not have sexual abuse. Um, the rates in developed countries also. Uh, seem to be pretty close to the same. Um, the one thing that's different in terms of the the, the statistics, the numbers, is that um, in Israel they uh, they say that the rates of uh, in terms of how many children get sexually abused, it's one in five, which is similar to what it is, let's say, in the United States. But it's one in five. One in five is, children are sexually abused. One in five children will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. And um, it's said to be the same here between boys and girls, whereas in the U.S. it is said to be higher among girls than than among boys. It's one in six boys approximately between one and six, one and seven. One, um, and this is not an orthodox four. statistic. This is just in the whole world. The the one in five is here in Israel, and that's across, across uh, the board. populations, yeah. And um, and in the U.S., it's across the secular world. But the, the you know, anecdotally or speculatively, they believe that the reason that it's uh, equal between boys and girls in Israel is because there are larger uh, religious communities. And in religious communities, if you're, if you're talking about a, no, a non-preferential offender, an offender who would either, boys and girls, Basically, it's whoever's available. Um, it's an op- somebody who's an opportunist. So, in because sexual abusers are they're, they're more often men, although not always, but more often men. Um, and in the religious communities, men have more access to boys. That so it is thought to be that that may uh-huh. be the reason why the rates are higher among among boys as well. Anecdotally, many therapists in the Orthodox community believe that incest may be higher just based on what they're seeing. Do Again, they know why? Well, the, the same idea. If you're talking about who who do we have access to, who do the men have access to, if it's if they're if they're trying to gain access to girls, the girls that they're going to mainly have access to would be family members. Um, they don't have a lot of opportunity otherwise. They're not teaching them in school. They're not coming across them in social you know interactions. It would be very hard for them to keep that under the radar if they were just hanging out with a young female. That's not something that's typically seen unless it's an immediate family member. So, again, that's not something that you know. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of research and data. Um, pulled on that yet. The fact that in some very ultra-Orthodox communities, even within the family, boys and girls are kept somewhat separate. They might have a Shabbos table where boys are at one table and girls are at the other. I've seen situations like that in certain Hasidic communities. Is that possibly an over-sexualization that could lead to this? It's 
I realize it's speculation. Say, yes, it. I mean, listen. Many people believe that um, that the oversexualization, has, you know, directly contributes to, to sexual abuse, and it's certainly, you know, you, you would see why it's it's reasonable to say that that's sort of the flip side of the same. If you sexualize somebody in, to such a degree, then the natural next step would be sexual abuse. So I, I think it's a very it's a loaded question. Um, it's a very nuanced question because I, I don't believe. And I don't think that research bears out that somebody who is sexually repressed will become a pedophile. Pedophilia is, you know, an attraction to children is something fairly specific and horrible. Mm -hmm. It's not a natural, you know, because somebody is sexually repressed, they're going to now be attracted to children. They may engage in other kinds of behaviors that are not so socially appropriate. They may, you know, sit at, you know, watch watch women or watch men, whatever their, you know, uh, their preferences in, in a way that's not appropriate because they don't have access to it in any way that is socially appropriate. But pedophilia as in, you know, prepubescent attraction to prepubescent children is really not something that's that's a kind of a, a normal byproduct that someone would just turn to. Well, I meant specifically the idea of incest. In other words, the fact that in ultra-Orthodox communities there might be more incest than there is in the secular world is because those communities, again, once pure speculation, I don't mean pedophilia per se, when a pedophile chooses to do incest as opposed to somebody who is not a family member, it's possible, I'm suggesting, that the sexualization of the family group itself, where the boys and girls, the brothers and sisters don't sit with each other at the table, that might have something to do with it. I meant that in particular. Right. I mean, it's that's a kind of um, an area that's probably a, that's well above my pay grade. <laughs> so I wouldn't give too much of uh, But I would say I, I have read and I'm trying to remember. I can't right now remember the the, uh, the research that I read recently about this, where they were talking about biologically, there is some, you know, basis to to see something like that. You know, the, the process that goes on between humans, where the reason that we are not you know, in layman's terms, the reason we're not attracted to our siblings at all, in fact, that we're repulsed by them has to do with certain chemical processes that happen in our brains and pheromones, you know, when we're growing up together in the same house. Mm -hmm. um, and then when that when that doesn't happen, if we're kept separate to the point that biologically we don't, you know, develop as siblings, maybe that is, you know, that, that could be reasonable. And again, I'm saying this, I'm not a right. researcher, I'm not as speculative. Right. Interesting because... I was at a seminar once where they were talking about um, risk factors for families in which incest can take place or, or kind of happen without being you know, quickly noticed or dealt with. Right. Um, and they were, they were listing various risk factors. And one of them, and I, again, I'm sorry, I don't remember um, who it was that had done this research, but they were discussing um, that families where the teenage boys went to school in different places, you know, went to boarding schools where there that was a risk factor for for incest again probably for the same kind of they're not growing up under the exactly, same exactly they're not growing up in the same roof so you know perhaps that's that's a factor there it was very interesting because as far as i know the Jewish Orthodox community is the only community that kind of on an institutional level does that sends boys from the age of 14 not everyone but where boys will go off to yeshiva at that age, again, that does not mean that every yeshiva bacher is going to be, of course, of course, but that just means that's a risk factor. That's something to just be conscious of. And obviously, you know, having one risk factor doesn't mean someone's going to abuse anyone. That's just one of many risk factors. Um, rigidity in kind of a, or a lack of certain lack of emotional language is another risk factor. Uh, lack of sexual education was another risk factor. Large families with many children, specifically large families where older children are left in positions of authority over younger children. Those are all said to be risk factors. Unfortunately, all of those are actually quite common in right. the those Orthodox are community. The community. Yes, of yes. So those are, we definitely have a lot of risk factors. It's something to be conscious of and it's something we need to deal with, again, while not saying that that means that every family is going to, God of forbid. Course. Now, a big thing that 
is known in these Orthodox communities, and many of them, is the fact that there is a reluctance among certain communities to get the police involved. They say, we'll handle it internally, and obviously we know that doesn't work. So the first question is, is that changing at all? You mentioned before we went on the air that there is some improvement in that area, that some of these communities are beginning to say, no, no, we're not going to handle it internally. You have to go to the police. So have things gotten better? Things have definitely gotten better. And I want to just to touch on that for a second, because I think it's so important. And every time I speak to anyone about this um, in any public forum, I think it's important to stress that that is not something that's unique to the Orthodox community. That is something that we see in every insular community. We've seen it. In, we saw it in the kibbutzim. We've seen it, we're seeing it in the universities and, you know, the, the Ivy League universities. We've seen it in the Catholic Church, obviously. But every community where there is a, an insularity, where there is a sense of us versus them, there is this natural sort of pushback against airing our dirty laundry to them, whoever them might be. So that's not something that's unique um, to Orthodox Judaism. We have the added little <laughs> um, unfortunate you know, factor of generational PTSD, if you will, of the fear of the outside authorities and what they could do to us, the fear of anti-Semitism, which again is born from a very real place, of course. Um, and there are many communities that still really deeply believe this. If you tell the police that somebody in our community, a rabbi in our community, is molesting children, there could be a pogrom. Like, this is something that's actually Yeah, but this happens in Israel just as much, I think, as it happens in outside of Israel. Isn't that true? I mean, we see in some insular communities in Israel this tremendous reluctance to go to the police also. Absolutely. But unfortunately, those communities are often the same ones who believe that the secular authorities in Israel are not really Jewish. They don't mm -hmm. see them as a Jewish entity. So it's kind of the same. Secular authorities are, you know, twisted as that might be, they might as well be. They might as well be non-Jewish. Yeah. Right. And some of that fear is very real. And I think it's important to, I mean, it comes from a very real place. So I think before we discount it as being something completely archaic, which it is, and before we discount it as being, you know, totally unproductive, which it is, um, we need to at least give it that place of this is coming from somewhere very real and it needs to be you know, we need to deal with that when we teach people why it is that they need to trust the authorities when it comes to this issue. In other words, if we it. simply tell them go to the authorities, you're missing the larger point, which yes. is that there's a reason for their fear, even though it's unfounded. Yes. Yes. Ultimately, when communities handle it internally, we know it doesn't work. It does why, not work. Why not? First of all, they're not trained for it. You know, our staff, we're, you know, all trained in different areas and have been working in this field for many years. We will not deal with all aspects of this issue because you need, you need really a multidisciplinary approach to effectively deal with um, child sexual abuse, certainly incest. It's incredibly complicated. You have to deal with the, I mean, we, we see the issue, we talk about the issue as being very black and white, and in a certain sense it is. Victims are innocents. They hold no shame. They should hold no shame. It is not their fault. The guilt is, is not theirs to bear. It is the abuser's. Um, that doesn't change the fact that, that they often carry a lot of guilt anyway. Yes. Regardless of whether also, there's any logic right, behind it. Right, of course. It also changed the fact that sometimes the victim loves the abuser. Sometimes the victim doesn't want to report it. Sometimes it's not actually the rabbi who's telling the victim not to report it. It's the victim saying, I don't want to report it. And then, you know, and, and we're saying throughout it, but you should report it. Well, I'm going to report it, but she doesn't want to report it. How do we, th this is something that sometimes actually becomes much more complex than we would like it to be. And there are, you know, there are lives here. That's something that we, obviously, the first and the the biggest priority that we have are is the victim and the children of the community. They need to be safe. But then, of course, we do have the concern of, you know, and we think about this. We weigh it. We always do. The abuser's family. It's going to be very embarrassing for them. It's going to be very painful for them. And 
if it's not their fault, which it sometimes is not, the, the family had, had no idea what was going on, then it's very painful when they have to carry that. So we sort of have to, we're keeping all of these things. It's and again, balance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're, we at least have to give that its space. It needs to be much lower down on the priority list below <laughs> keeping children safe. Clearly. But, you know, but we give that its- It's not uh, a non-factor. Yeah. Right. Going back to the idea that things are getting better, I remember about five years ago, the very unfortunate Yosef Kolko case in Lakewood, for example. I noticed on your wall of shame that he's up there, along with many, many other people. Just as an example where, at least according to reports that I read, when the father went to the police, again, this was a teacher who was abusing a child, when the father of the child went to the police after consulting Rav Moshe Sternbach, it was not done wantonly. He actually checked with this very serious rabbi in Israel, and he was told to go to the police, and he was hounded so much that he had to move out of state. Yes. That is not a unique situation with the Nehemiah Weberman case in the Sovereign community in Williamsburg. It was just horrific. I was reading an article today in the New York Post from back then where the person who had accused Weberman of doing these things, who brought it to the police, when she went to shul on Rosh Hashanah, they stopped davening, according to this article, until she left Mm -hmm. because she was a terrible person. She's the villain. This flipping of the villain and the victim is such a, such a painful thing to hear about. Is that going to change? Is that getting better at all? I, I definitely, I think we have seen that it is. We, In what ways? Like how, how, how is it changing? It's, it's changing from the bottom up. You know, would the, you know, certainly there are, there are certain communities where if I were to walk in today to, you know, just any of us, any of our staff were to walk in, they would just call us terrible names, which I won't say here, to our faces, and that would be it. There's there's no there's no gray area for them. But what are you doing wrong in their minds? Meaning Moistrim, we're we are speaking Lashinhara, we are, you know, destroying the fabric of the community. It's a very, I guess, immature kind of perspective where you look at the person in their mind, right now, the person threatening the the structure of their community is the victim. Not the abuser. The abuser already abused. It's happened already. And even if he still is, they'll claim that he isn't or they'll warn him and he'll stop and whatever they but the the victim is the one who's threatening their status quo, and that is and that they they just can't deal with that. And it's and it's an incredibly I, guess, I mean immature is the only word that really can I can think of to describe something that's so short sighted, where you're not recognizing that you're, what's actually destroying the fabric of your society is people raping children, and the way the victims are suffering. And well, the do they actually believe that the person's innocent? I know they always say that, but deep down, do they say no, he's guilty? But that's the lesser problem. The more serious problem is allowing the outside world to encroach upon us. Do they believe this person is innocent? Sometimes I'm sure they do. Sometimes definitely, but oftentimes they know they know he's guilty. There's been too many victims. They just think that they can control it, that they can somehow keep it contained by you know again warning him. We hear that a lot, or marrying him off, which is this this again, which also goes back to the myth. That, that pedophilia is a result of just sexual oppression. Because if that were the case, then we should just marry them all off and then they'd all be fine. Problem solved. Yeah, exactly. This would be like a really short-lived problem. But it's not. It doesn't work at all. And we've come across this over and over again where now it's years later and we are dealing with these cases. We are dealing with these children. We're dealing with his own children who he abused. And we're hearing, well, they knew. His, his yeshiva knew. His teachers knew. His parents knew. But we they were positive. They married him off. It was going to be fine. And they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to ruin his shidduch. And the, the girl already, they'd already gone out. I, I just remember one horrible, horrible situation that we dealt with, horrific, where the man had, had raped his daughters over the course of a few years. And when the mother found out and it was reported and we were involved, the devastation for the mother, you know, and I can't, I, can't, I could certainly, I can't say I speak for all women. But I will go on on a limb and say, I think I probably speak for most women when I say, just don't do us any favors. Like, 
warn us, <laughs> break off our shidduch. Why would you let us marry a man? In or, other words, this father was somebody who had already had, yes. had been doing this long before he was married, he was and later on he was raping his yeah. daughters. And when he was dating his wife, the his Rosh Hashiva had found out that he had molested um, a kid in the yeshiva and said, don't, and actually kicked the kid, the victim, out of the yeshiva because they were afraid that he was going to tell people and they didn't want to ruin his shidduch. He kicked the kid out of the, the yeshiva, kid the was victim. kicked out of the yeshiva, yes. Wow. So you said that it's starting to change from the bottom up. What do you mean by that? I mean that there are parents, even parents really within the community who are saying enough. We're not going to sacrifice our children on your altar of your you know, reputation and the way you think our community should look. Um, and I think that's really where the where the change is happening. Teachers who are gonna who are gonna call us, they're not gonna tell anyone, they're gonna call us and they're gonna tell us they're they're concerned for a kid in the class and they don't know what to do. People are gonna call, they're gonna call the police, they're gonna call us, they're gonna call organizations, they're gonna call a therapist, um, and that's the people on the ground. And slowly but surely, I mean, I got a call three days ago from a family, um, a very Haredi community, and when we asked, you know, how did you get our number, he said, I, I went to my Rav because I found out about this. And um, the Rav said you have to call you have to call JCW. That was wonderful wow, so to that's, hear. Yeah. And this is in the community that you would not have expected that. I would not have expected that. And then of course we connected them. They had to they had to deal with social services and a therapist and you know, we made we set all that up, but it was um, it was unbelievable that it, you know, came that way. And are some of the Rebbeim who in the past, some of the Rebbeis or Rebbeim who were in charge of these communities in the past might have said, we'll handle it internally. Are they changing their mind also? Absolutely, yes. So it really has been yes. a change. Yes, we've definitely seen that. And we've also seen, um, unfortunately, many of them are still not willing to say it publicly. I don't think that same Rev would get up and publicly tell a room full of people to call us. But certainly, you know, when it happens, they will say you you need to... You need to speak to someone who has dealt with this 400 times before and has a better idea who do you, where do you go, who do you call, what works, what doesn't work. And we, you know, even if we don't know the answers to that, we work with all the people. We have wonderful professionals, whether it's on our board, whether it's people that we advise with, and we will connect families with those people to make sure that they get the help that they need. But you told me off the air that it also works the other way, that sometimes there'll be some rabbis who will say publicly, oh, of course you have to go to the police, but in private to a yes. victim, they'll say, you know, we can actually handle this ourselves. Yes. So that's the flip side of it. That has been our unfortunate experience. And it's one of, actually probably one of the more angering parts of this is the hypocrisy when, when we come across that of, uh, you know, it's no longer... In vogue in most, even in, except in maybe the really, and still in the very insular communities, um, it's still acceptable to say victims lie, to say victims, but in the Haredi communities, in the ultra-Orthodox communities that are even somewhat, you know, more open, they need to at least, it, it's not cool anymore to be saying, no, victims all make it up and there's no sexual abuse in our you community. Just Everybody, you just can't say it anymore. It'll sound foolish. Yes. And, and no one will hear it. It will, you sort of lose like three quarters of your, you know, crowd. That, so you have to say, well, we know that it's happening and, uh, and we're, we're, we're offering educational programs. But educational programs, they're great. They're worthless, though, if you don't follow them up. If we're educating all of our children, come and tell us if someone touches you and then they come and tell us and we say, okay, well, now you're going to have to not tell anyone because, because we can't do anything about the abuser. We have to just leave him. Then what have you accomplished? You've actually devastated the child even more. If they hadn't told anyone, so okay, nobody knew. But if they tell, if the, if the child is telling the people in their lives it's supposed to protect them, and then those people are refusing to protect him, that is a secondary trauma that can't really be measured. I was looking at your website, jewishcommunitywatch.org, and you have the wall of shame there with a list. It's chilling reading. Just pictures of abusers and, in some situations, links to what they did and to mm -hmm. articles about them. And this is speaking purely anecdotally. 
and perhaps it's unfair of me to say this, but as you said, obviously there are more men than women there, but at least on your page, it does seem that there are more people who would be defined at least from the outside as ultra-Orthodox or Haredi rather than modern Orthodox, just on that page. Obviously, I can't know this for sure. It's just from a quick look at it. Is this a bigger problem in ultra-Orthodox communities than the modern Orthodox community or not? I don't know the answer to that. Any answer I would have to that would be purely speculative because there hasn't been research or you know data that we have to say specifically. But what I can say is that what you just you know what you noted about the wall of shame speaks more to the clientele or population that is reaching out to us, not necessarily indicative of what's going on in the, the or not representative of what's going on necessarily in the world. The people that reach out to us are largely more from the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities. We get more and more from the modern Orthodox communities, certainly. There's quite a few. And not everyone... also in the modern Orthodox or Lumi communities, national religious communities, there's less reluctance to go to the police anyway, so there's probably less need for your service in that sense. Some people will go directly to the police and they never involve you. Right. Not not everywhere. Not everywhere. There's certainly... We we have a lot... um, there are certainly communities that are still really, there's some ugly stuff that still goes on um, in the modern Orthodox or the Tilumi communities as as well. I guess we, we share it. We share that with everyone. I, I don't think any one community has the monopoly, but, but no certainly, yeah, seriously. But I think that the people that are reaching out to us are usually more the people that really have no clue where to turn. And on that, yes, it's true. There's really... The, in the ultra-Orthodox community until recently, they wouldn't have even known where to start. Now, are there things that the Orthodox world, again, the broad Orthodox world, when it comes to sexual abuse, does better than the secular world outside? Things that we can look at with admiration that they do well. Because we hear about all these situations that sound so embarrassing and they're terrible and they're chil Hashem and, and that's all aside from the, just the evil of the act itself. Are there things we can look at with pride and say, you know something, this is something we actually are doing well? Well, I think that, and this it's interesting because What's so positive in the ultra-Orthodox community is also something that I, I feel so passionately about. It's one of the most frustrating things about this area because there is no community that I know of anywhere that does chesed like the ultra-Orthodox community. I mean, you literally can't find a block that doesn't have like three gamaks for literally everything that you could possibly imagine that you could ever need. It will be taken care of and it will be taken care of for free or at least, you know, long-term loan. There's unbelievable amounts of chesed that go on in that community. So for us to still be talking about issues like reporting is so maddeningly frustrating because these families are suffering. Families where, you know, if that same family, God forbid, had a child who was sick with a physical illness, um, there would be four organizations who would be taking the siblings out. They would have camps. There would be They would be getting Hanukkah presents. They would be going out once a week to pools. They would be getting tutors. They would be getting meals twice a week. Their needs would be met on so many different levels. And instead, if they had a child who was molested, who who at least for the short term needs an incredible amount of care, that child has to be sometimes in intensive therapy. The process of reporting is, I mean, we're talking about meetings back and forth, the police, the courts, the court process can take two, it's two years easily. And incredibly painful, incredibly painful for everyone involved. And the family, not only there, it's not only are there no services offered to them, but they might be ostracized or nobody at least wants to talk about it. Certainly everyone's going to sort of avoid them. They don't want – that would be like the best case scenario is either nobody really knows or they pretend not to know. They don't really talk about it. It's embarrassing. There's such a stigma and and that's terrible because there's no reason why this family shouldn't be getting the same kind of support. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's the same thing in that this is a family well, you're in crisis. The infrastructure is there. Yes, it's ready to go it. if only the stigma would be gone. Yes, if it would just be implemented, if it would just be something that why are these families not getting meals? Why is nobody bringing their their kids, you know, all of these kids who are literally they're getting forgotten about. The one sibling is being, you know, he's having nightmares and he's being brought to court once a week for 
and everyone else is sort of wandering around in a daze and no one is doing anything for them. And that's the best case scenario, that they're ignoring it as opposed to right. actively calling them the Kicking villains, them out right? of the community or kicking them out of schools or whatever. Yeah, that would be... Right, the victim blaming. Yeah. Now, what is needed to affect further change? In other words, what do you want to see happen and how are you going to do it? Um, I think that we still need more awareness. I think we're not done with that. There's a lot of awareness, but there's not enough. I think a few months ago I had a conversation with a... Haredi victim, Basiakov girl, who told me that she had no idea that we existed. She had no idea that there was anyone out there that could help her with this or that could help anyone like her. And I, I said, like, I think that as long as there's anyone out there who can still say something like that, that doesn't have any idea that there are other people that have suffered in this way and that can absolutely help them, then we're not done with the awareness. There's not enough yet. But I think that on top of the awareness, there needs to be really education, education for the Rabbanim, who honestly, sometimes they just don't know. I really believe that. I don't think they realize how prevalent this is. So many of them, I don't think that- Even now. Even now. I really don't think, I don't think anyone, some of them are very busy. That's part of the problem. The bigger the Rav, the more, the less access, you know, they have to the, to the kind of us the rank regular and file, people. Yeah. yeah. And who, how would they know that unless someone's telling them, unless someone's really telling them. And then if that person is someone that they see as being like really biased or sort of having a political, you know, reasoning for wanting, will they believe them when actually people from the community, unless people from their own community are coming to them and saying, I was a victim, I was a victim, and people aren't coming and telling them that necessarily, or they're, maybe they're not telling them enough. Maybe they're coming and saying, you know, I know a friend who knows a friend who was abused, but they're not actually, you know, just the more we break the stigma, and I don't think that the the idea of Breaking through that stigma, I don't think that can be emphasized enough because I believe that our community is capable of doing that. And I think we see it, we've seen it as um, just, again, it's it's not a, a great comparison, but I think it's an important one. Um, you know, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, there were families who used to give away their children if they had Down syndrome. This was something that was acceptable in the Orthodox community. Like it was actually done. I don't know how often, but we read these stories now that mothers are writing, you know, years later sure. about how horrible that was and about how their rubs sometimes told them that they should do this because if they didn't, then, you know, if they did, it would be a horbun. It would be a horrible for the child. It would be devastating. But if they didn't do it, if they kept the baby, then none of their children would ever get shidduchim and they would never. And that's horrible. And now where we are in today's day and age, I think in the, in the ultra-Orthodox community, children with Down syndrome are gifts. I mean, they've always been gifts, but we They're see loved, them as being gifts. They right. are loved. Yaakov Shwaki writes songs about them. Right. <laughs> it is a beautiful, you know. They're part of the community they are, Yes, they are seen as a valued part of the community. They are seen as having something to offer. There are programs, and they, and we can't imagine that in our lifetime, people were giving away their babies because of this. So if we can come that far on something that really is so drastic, there is no reason that we can't do the same thing on sexual abuse. And I, again, I don't want to make the comparison because obviously it's very different, but in that there is this intense stigma, it is the same. It's nice to hear that there's hope. If you could have one message you could send to people in the Orthodox community, if there's one thing you want them to hear that's important for them all to hear about what you're doing about sexual abuse in the community, what would you tell them? I think there is hope. There is a lot more hope than most people realize. If you are a victim, get help because there is help available and it's worth it. It's so important. And if you are you know, lucky enough to not have been a victim, then just recognize that People close to you, and I say people, not person, because one in five, you know, if you think about the number of people that you know, that's a lot of people that were abused, and they are probably not telling you. They may well not be telling you, but they are holding this, and they're carrying it, and you have an obligation. Every person has an obligation to make our community one where they feel safe and 
welcome to get whatever help they need and a community where abusers know that this is not going to be acceptable. No one is going to cover for them. They are going to be held accountable for their actions. And if people do want to use the services of Jewish Community Watch, how do they contact the organization? So the best way is probably through email, info at jewishcommunitywatch.org, and that will go to, you know, you can direct it to whichever office, wherever in the world you need uh, help. Our phone number is listed there on the website. That's the best way to reach out. Okay, well, Shauna Aronson, the COO of Jewish Community Watch, this has been very disturbing, but also very enlightening, and I'm glad there's hope. It's more than I hoped for before we started off. This becomes the kind of situation where you say, is this going to go on forever? And just, it's like trying to spit into the ocean. Nothing's ever going to change, but at least you're saying there really is hope for things to get better, and things are getting a little bit better. Hopefully, it'll get more so. Thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We would like your feedback. Please write to orthodoxconundrum at jewishcoffeehouse.com. We want to hear what you think. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.